At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. This week, a conversation with Rex Jensen, the president and chief executive officer of Schrader Manatee Ranch, the family-owned firm that launched Lakewood Ranch three decades ago. Lakewood Ranch is the vast master plan community that straddles Manatee and Sarasota counties east of I-75, and Jensen has been its guiding vision since the beginning. It doesn't matter whether you're pro-growth or anti-growth, according to Jensen. It's going to happen, he says, and the issue is what kind. Rex Jensen, welcome to Florida Matters. Thank you very much, Robin. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about the history behind Lakewood Ranch. Well, the history of it is that the property has been owned for nearly a century by uh, various branches of the Eline family. The property started out as a timber operation. Back in the days, um, the entire area in southwest Florida was was timbered for its old-growth pine trees. And those pines had a very tight growth ring, very high resin content because they were old growth. And it was basically their equivalent of today's treated lumber, only without the arsenic. Through a series of business dealings, the Eline family became involved in the company. The Schraders married into the Eline family, and they never changed the name on the door, even though it was largely majority owned by the Eline family. And the Eline family was the family uh, that founded Schlitz Correct. Brewing. Mm-hmm. And so they were all from up north. All from Milwaukee mm-hmm. area. Originally. Yeah. And they still are in ownership of all that property? Mm -hmm. And then you came in. I came in close to 30. 30 Um, years ago. Yeah. We started Lakewood Ranch 25 years ago, and and I was there before there was a Lakewood Ranch. Yeah. So 30 years ago, I read 1989 was when, I guess, the first permits were granted for development. Yes. And that was the beginning Mm -hmm. of Lakewood Ranch. So how did you get into it? Well, I got a call from my predecessor, John Clark, uh, telling me that they were getting ready to think about developing this this property. And at the time, I had laryngitis and couldn't really talk to him very well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm certain that's why the uh, phone interview went um, so okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and I was invited down. And it just took one look at the the property. Um, you could see signs on their tree farm that said, clean air begins here. I mean, there were things like that that just spoke to the ethics of the company, the uh, approach that they took uh, uh, to a long-term view of things, and it really appealed to me. Uh, you can't look at a map and find a better piece of property from that standpoint. Um, Really because at the time, there was nothing there. Well, but stop and think about a road that goes from Miami to Canada 
And if that is not an economic opportunity for interchanges on that road, I, I don't know what is. On its face at the time, if you were a resident of that area, people uniformly thought we were insane. Well, yeah, there wasn't much there. It there seemed kind there. of far from yeah. Tampa or Sarasota or Bradenton. Yes. But the point of it is I-75 is where it is, and that's the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Who had the vision? Uh, I think the vision was shared by a lot of people. I think uh, I'd have to raise my hand and say I believed in it a little more firmly than most. But before I got there, the uh, family had done a series of studies trying to adopt a vision uh, for their property uh, because they believed in it, whereas the local community did not. In fact, they began to form this vision due to what I would call a series of minor provocations by the local municipalities, uh, such as Let's put, we need a a sewer plant, but we don't want it in our backyard. Let's put it out there on that Schroeder property. Uh, We need a landfill. We don't want that in our backyard. Let's go condemn a piece of that Schroeder property. Uh, The thing that broke the camel's back was reading in the newspaper that they were also about to condemn a piece of that Schroeder property for the airport, moving from where it is today um, out there. And the family kind of scratched its head and said, gosh, this is such a significant asset in our opinion, and nobody seems to appreciate it. Let's at least develop our own vision for where this could go. Let's look inventory the property. Let's look at at um, what land should be set aside, for example. Let's look at what land could be developed and what could make some sense for it. There has for a long time been a long-term vision for where this property could be going. Now, were any of those plans or alternatives accurate? No, not exactly. However, they had some hallmarks in each and every one of them that that began to suggest a uh, series of lines on the coloring book that, again— could be filled in with the passage of time. Now, why a master-planned community? It seems very complicated. <clears throat> it is. Rather than, um, you know, housing development and, you well, know, put in some nice housing for people who want to commute from Sarasota. Well, stop and think about that. If We've got 50 square miles of property. And 50 square miles of That's that huge, actually. homogeneity is pretty darn boring yeah. and that's you said um what several cities could fit inside 50 square miles well as an example if you want to pick existing cities in the area you could put the incorporated boundaries of bradenton sarasota venice and palmetto on the ranch and have several thousand acres left over so you're talking about a big area so you're talking about a big area and you can't have at least in a decent planning sense a huge area of only one thing. Um, that gets you into the land of the lemmings. It, 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 it just uh, is not a good plan. Uh, it would create, by the time you carry it fully out, um, a lot of unhappiness. So you wanted to start planning 
from the beginning for what? what for the future. Of- I mean, mm-hmm. really, I mean, now if you want to talk about what goes in, what specific elements go into that, but you are planning for the future and a future that you can live with instead of one that you regret. And let me just leap ahead to today to give you an inkling of the kind of thing that has happened out there and why it was imperative to plan for it. Um, we have today about 16,000 homes on site, and at 2.4 people in a cocker spaniel uh, per house. Yeah, like around 35,000 people. 35, 36, 37,000 people. We mm-hmm. uh, added uh, about 1,500 homes last year. So those are under construction this year, and by the time this year ends, maybe we'll have another 3,000 people on top of that. So that's a very fast growth. I keep seeing whether you're number one or number two in the country for multi-generational Well, for multi-generational, we're clearly number one. Uh, In terms of communities abstractly, you've got to look at the villages up uh, um, in in northern Florida. They're the leaders by far historically. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we've eclipsed them only briefly because I think that they've run out of land temporarily, but I think that's only a temporary thing. But in terms of multi-generational communities, we're, we're clearly uh, the number one in the United States. But we're not only houses. You started to ask, well, why couldn't you just be a housing development? And the answer is because we were on I-75. That's a pretty good place for an employment center. And to have an employment center, you need an employment base. We could have fallen off a log in Sarasota and Bradenton and become a retirement community. That's what the market was. On the other hand, we have 50 square miles of land. And sure, we could have developed a lot of that land as a a retirement community, but it would have been, at the end of the day, pretty blasé. Was that boring to you? Oh, yes. we had uh, a few square miles of of property that would just make sense as employment centers. And so we planned early on. Our first development was not retirement at all. It was workforce housing. Our first homes sold for $89,000 to $129,000. So affordable. Affordable uh, mm-hmm. in uh, today's parlance. Uh, and at that time, it was uh, what passed for that. And we became known immediately as a family-oriented community, and that gave us a lot of uh, vibrancy that um, you just don't have if you go the other way. Um, Why? The communities that many of us have migrated from, we had social ties. We had churches. We had all of these things right in our area. We had schools. We had our jobs nearby. And the typical fragmented development model in Florida and elsewhere is you develop a postage stamp and cram it full of houses, and then you look for where's the school, where's the park, where are all these things that I grew up with. We decided we had so much land, let's bring that inside the community and make a real community. And the difference between a project and a community, there's that extra dimension of a social fabric and a lifestyle that is a very distinguishing factor. And I think that that from day one 
distinguished us from our competition. That was more complicated, though, because if you felt like you want the school there, you want the recreational uh, activities, you're going to have to work with the county. You're going to yes. have, have you're going to have to bring in the school board and convince mm-hmm. them of this. And we did. You know, um, one of the things early on was to just recognize that, that, that you don't just snap your fingers and do a school like you can snap your fingers and build a house, right? Mm-hmm. Big investment, a lot of resource, a lot of... Uh, and taxpayer investment. And, and taxpayer investments, and they, they, you don't, don't throw that around. So I went to a school board meeting early on and uh, told the board from the dais that I'd like to kidnap your staff. And I said, well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with your staff the plans that we have. I'd like your staff to just simply, even though they may not believe in the plan, tell me if this plan happens in the way that we think it does, where would you put the schools? Where would you want them? You guys know that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't know what kind of population density you you need. I don't know what your demographic assumptions are of you know, so many student stations per how how many houses. So I'd like to take two or three days and just walk through this and let's plan it together as if we were in fact developing it together. And out of those series of meetings arose a series of push pins that we put on the map that began to suggest how many schools we needed, where they needed to be, and what kind they need to be. Did they need to be elementary schools, middle schools, high schools? And uh, that gave us some guidance in our phasing. It gave us some guidance in our infrastructure so that when we knew a school site was needed, we made sure that the roads got to it, that the sewer lines got to it, and the water lines got to it, and we made it easy for the school board to pop them up consistent with demand. And we became known for many years um, as the place where we were um, a school ahead instead of two schools behind. That's why another reason we've been successful is because of our scale, our ability to look ahead, our ability to think in terms of more than just tomorrow. And um, You know, that comes out of people ask me often, well, how did you take a blank canvas and do all of this? Well, the answer is I didn't. It's I didn't for two reasons. One, it wasn't a blank canvas. We had a history of ownership on our property, a family ethic of environmental stewardship, quality, hard work. All of that is in the tapestry somewhere. It's in the painting, in in the in the background. It's the wash that's on the canvas before you start the the other brush strokes. Similarly, we had a team. I mean, there are 300 and some people today uh, inside the company, and it's been a team effort from the beginning. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're taking a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is Florida Matters. Today we're speaking to Rex Jensen, the president and chief executive officer of Schrader Manatee Ranch, which developed the community of Lakewood Ranch. You mentioned environmental stewardship mm-hmm. of the Eline family, and that's kind of something that I'm wondering about because 
they've owned this this land for a long time, these two families. Mm-hmm. And I would think they would have some feeling for the land itself. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> old Florida, old Florida growth, pine growth mm-hmm. and things. You know, a lot of people would rather see that land stay in agriculture. They'd rather see cattle grazing, bald eagles, well, you know, no crowd. So, you know, what do you say to people who who say, you know, why do we need another what, however, 16,000 houses out well, there. Well, my response is I don't see your name on our property tax bill. If I did, I'd begin to listen to your desires, number one. Number two, you don't have a choice as to whether you're going to get growth or not. You only have a choice as to what form that growth is going to take. You can look at growth which is high impact and pretty low value, or you can look at growth that is comparatively lower impact and much higher value. And I think that Lakewood Ranch fits that that goal. There are other choices. There are impact fees and higher taxes. Well, I have been uh, an advocate of impact fees from day one. So I, you'd like to see them come back? Yes. Yeah. I hate the idea of all these, you know, Florida has its growth management laws all backwards. Basically, they've got a system which encourages small development and discourages large development. And it's in their head a numbers game. Well, a large development has 1,000 homes, a small development has 50. Well, that 50 times 20 of those things that you don't even regulate, you don't even look at, carries with it five times the impact of the 1,000 homes that is. So you were probably dismayed in, during Governor Scott's administration then when there were changes to the comprehensive growth plans. And well, I was dismayed at the DRI process itself. That's the um, DRI. Development of regional impact. What I'm talking about is the concurrency rules said, look, if a project is just so small, we don't care about it. Well, that is 90% of the growth that happens in Florida. How about taking a nickel at a time while all of this pressure is building up and have something in the bank to deal with the result before the crisis occurs? So be specific. What exactly are you saying? Well, uh, this probably gets well beyond uh, the scope of your show, but... Um, in 1985, a law, I think, called the Growth Management Act, creatively enough, was passed, and it passed a concept called concurrency, meaning that if there is no infrastructure in place, development can't happen. Now, that's simple-minded, sounds good, feels good. Sounds and that's, reasonable. And whenever something sounds reasonable and it's simple, it's probably wrong. Because what it did was created a system that was contrary to the intent of the people that passed it. The people that passed it thought it would put pressure on the world to actually fund infrastructure. That's what John Make sure you have roads in and you have a fire station and things like that before you put in a big development. Yeah, or any development. Mm -hmm. And what... Uh, they said was it turned into an excuse for everybody not to do their job and not do this and just say, okay, we'll let things go until they can't go any further. And it was a dreadful 
mistake. And you can look around the state and you can see the results of the chaos that that policy has created. In our case, we built our roads. And that is another thing that I think is uh, something that if you want to look for the success of Lakewood Ranch, that lies in how it's been financed. We've weathered a lot of economic storms over the, you know, this two and a half decades. And we got started just after also a, a large recession. Recall something named the savings and loan crisis, the mm-hmm. SNL crisis. Right. And there was a time when in the real estate business, the music was pretty and there were lots of chairs for everybody. But then all of a sudden the music stopped and all the savings and loans began to say, gee, we can't have our money into this kind of stuff, pulled them out. And there were a lot of collapses economically over that. Well, when we began our project, part of the delay from, you said the first permit was in 1989. And I told you that the first home was sold in 1995. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that was we were all scratching our heads is to say, how do we finance this? We saw this collapse of the Tower of Babel of the SNL crisis and didn't want to get into that. And then we hit upon the um, Special District Act that the state has that allows the formation of what are called limited purpose governments or community development districts. They build things and they build roads, sewer water, landscaping, and then they take care of it for the long term. And that allowed us to issue 30-year bonds in some cases and pay for the infrastructure that we were putting up on a basis that is consistent with the incoming volume of residences. In other words, it matches the cash flow. You're not uh, uh, always upside down as you would be in a, a typical real estate project. Many smaller real estate projects make no money in the beginning. It's all at the end. Well, that's a very risky proposition. So is that what helped get you through this last Great Recession? I mean, things must have been going along pretty well until 2008 when the bottom fell out. You're dead on. In in 2008, we felt like the Maytag repairman. I mean, the phone just simply did not ring. Everything was just uh, uh, an economic desert. Our interest uh, in debt payments didn't change. They were on a 30-year fixed amortization. And as long as we make that, we're fine. We also just stopped making forward investments for a while until um, uh, the economy and, and absorption caught up again. Going back to some of the fundamental values that the family had, quality. We kept the quality up. I mean, um, when I had, I had to lay off um, maybe 15% of the people in the company I didn't lay off the people who were out on the street um, taking care of the community. That's interesting because I remember a city where I live in did lay off their parks department mm-hmm. when during the recession, yeah. and you can see you could see it in the way the trees were maintained yeah. and in I, the and public it, spaces. And uh, you know, so we cut significantly at the middle management levels, but. Uh, um, You know, the frontline troops uh, were there, and they kept the place up. People were amazed at that, but it stood us in very good stead because when the recession ended, people remembered 
how the community looked throughout, they remembered that we never defaulted on a single thing, uh, unlike many of our competitors. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in real estate? Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, would give the advice that um, you've simply got to keep your nose to the grindstone. Um, real estate is also a team sport. It is not a uh, individual um, performance art. Um, and the, those who are in it for themselves are likely to be severely disappointed because most of the tasks that you've got to go through in, in real estate are too big for any one person to perform. Uh, frankly, they're too big for any one company to perform, and that's why even a company like ours needs a lot of partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, Learn to make partners. Yep. So um, who's moving into Lakewood Ranch now? You you mentioned that when it started out it was family-friendly, but I think I read that that's not even actually the majority of families moving in now. They um, are not with children. I would say that that is accurate if you really want to emphasize with upper case caps and lights on it, majority. On the other hand, 44% of our buyers are a combination of millennials and Gen Xers. They do have kids. Mm-hmm. And um, between the millennials and the Gen Xers, um, 19 percentage points of that 44 are millennial. And I guess that leaves 25 to be Gen X. So we still have a significant portion of the 1,500 homes a year that we've been selling as being people with families. Young families. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're getting a lot of the older boomer generation, I guess. Boomers in particular, and then the generation above them, uh, uh, I guess. uh, Seniors? Yeah. Not not wanting to move into a senior community, not wanting to move into a Although we have one of those. You do have part of it. We have uh, uh, one, um, and it's iconic as a a retirement community, and that's Del Webb. Okay. And then this was interesting. An article in the Bradenton Herald was talking about, uh, beyond the statistics, that Lakewood Ranch is attempting to cater to more subtle yearnings among consumers for a less stressful, quieter, simpler life. Oh, you know, that's not so subtle a yearning, number one. And number two, we just talked about different generations. And there is a long-standing belief, and certainly I had it, that each generation had its own terribly unique things that made it very different from another generation in terms of its housing choices, the kind of community that they wanted to be in, yada, yada, yada. Some of the latest research that I've seen are that that may be true on some points, but on the issues that you just talked about, the uh, the wellness, the um, feeling good mentally, all of that kind of thing, it's cutting across demographic after demographic after demographic. What's coming next for Lakewood Ranch? We've developed most of the originally 50 square miles. And by developed, I don't mean that there are homes on them yet, but I mean the land is committed to certain parties. Okay. We've had to expand the 
original ranch boundaries in some fashion to keep going. We also have agriculture. We have a fill dirt operation, a mining operation. So I'd like to keep those things going because, again, they work well in relation to the other pieces of the company. You can listen to Florida Matters whenever it's convenient for you as a podcast. Search for it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is George Govin. The show is produced by Christy O'Shauna. I'm Robin Sessingham. Thanks for listening. <laughs>